Thanks for checking out the weekly Harmony Church podcast. For more information and resources about Harmony Church or any of the Harmony events, check out the Harmony Church website or Harmony Church Facebook page today. It's wonderful to be here at the 6 o'clock service. I had a great time at the 10 a.m. service this morning. And so now it's great to be able to hang out with you lot. I mean, how many people were here at the 10 a.m. as well? Oh, oh, actually, there is a few of you. Well, for for anyone who who doesn't have a clue as to who I am, my name's Richard. I head up this organization called Strength to Strength, as Josh mentioned, which on the surface, it's a counseling, it's a training organization. But our heartbeat has always been to empower the local church to thrive so that she can get on and change the world. And so we do that as we help the individual, as we help church leaders, as we help pastoral care workers to succeed with their life, to succeed with their calling, with the the mission that God has placed on their heart. Because if we can see them set free to break through, to break free into all that God has called them and created them to be, then we're going to bless the church so that she can change the world. And and that's part of my heartbeat. And and so as such, it's just a joy to be able to be here and take my part in in the series of what you're looking at about Keep Your Love On. I think that's just brilliant. Because as we know, relationships are, are just foundational to our life, are they not? They're just central to who we are. But what I find that many people don't fully get is that relationships, good relationships, great relationships, don't just happen. They're made and they're maintained. Now, to be fair, some people can make it easier than others, but the relationships don't just happen. We've actually got to work at them. We've got to to maintain them. We've got to make them relationships of quality. You see, one of the things that I've found is that the quality of relationships that a person has around them, you know, in their their family, their friends, their colleagues, their schoolmates, and people here at church, the quality of those relationships, good, bad, and different, are an indication of two key things about you. The quality of the relationships you have around you are an indication of your emotional maturity, and your relational skill level. When you think about the relationships that you have around you, the the ones that are going well, the ones that are great, the ones that are close, and the ones that are awkward or slightly dysfunctional, those are an indication, by and large, of your emotional maturity level, how quickly you are to react, or how grounded you are, and your relational skill level how well you can communicate and negotiate with another person. Now, you see, that's actually good news. Because as I work on me, as I grow my emotional maturity, as I work on my skill level, then I change all of my relationships for the better. Because, you know, I'll work with people and they'll say to me, well, Richard, you know, I'd love to be able to develop this relationship or that relationship, but, you know, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? They don't seem to really want to be a part of this. They don't seem to want to engage in this. So, So there's nothing I can do. To which I'll tell them, that isn't fully accurate. You see, what I have found is that when I change me, I actually change we. Because relationships, what kind of relationships, any kind of relationships, whether they be with that special someone, 
or whether they be with your parents or with your children or with your colleagues or your schoolmates, any of those people, the relationship is a system. And so when we change one part of it, we actually change the whole of it. So when I change me, I actually change we. You see, what I'll find is that, that at times people will We'll have a look at the sort of way that they relate or someone relates to them. They'll see the kind of pattern that isn't so flash. And it's what I refer to as the dance. Look, I know what I'm going to do and say. I know what you're going to do and say. I know how this all ends up and it always sucks. You know, we just see it happen time and time again. And when we are waiting for the other person to change, of course, nothing changes. But when we own our zone... When we work on our stuff, when I change my dance steps, I actually change the dance. And what are my dance steps? My dance steps are my reaction to you. And you see, my friends, when we own our zone, when we grow our emotional maturity and our relational skill level, we change our relationships for the better. And we can actually continue to be God's agents for good in these relationships. And so that's really what I want to talk to you tonight about. That's where I want to take you. I want to take you to a passage of Scripture where we hear Jesus speak to us about relationships. Where he gives us some key details about how to develop our relationships, how to own our zone and how to change the dance. And what I find is that in this one simple passage are a number of powerful truths that empower us and empower us in our relationships. You interested to hear what they are? Yeah? No, the side is. Again, I've lost everyone else over here, haven't I? We can just take it or leave it. I think you want your milkshakes now. Is that what's happening? So in this, if you come with me, we're going to go to Matthew 7. And we're reading from verse 1 in this. Now, just a bit of background to this passage, a bit of context. This passage takes place within what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is part of an extended monologue from Jesus, where what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is what does it look like to be a kingdom person? What does it look like to be one of his disciples? What does it look like when you have transitioned over to being his person in the kingdom? And the piece that we're picking up is looking at the specific dynamics in a relationship. So here we read, Jesus says, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged and the measure you give will be measured against you. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye? Let me take the speck out of your log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye, while there's still a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard this passage multiple times. In fact, I've heard it so often that I've got to say, I'm probably, I got to a place where I was numb to its meaning. But what I find is that there's so much depth in this that when we break this passage apart, when we slow down and we just savor what's here, there's some depth that changes us as we apply it to our lives. 
So let's have a look at what Jesus is telling us. You know, the first thing he says here is, do not judge. Now, I remember, if I, as I read that, I think, do you know what, Jesus? I got that covered. You know, I'm not one of those people. I'm not a judgy kind of person. I'm not a judgmental kind of person. I'm not one of those people who, who condemns others, who judges others. So I think I got this one covered. I'm all good. But what I discovered looking at my own life and looking around at everyone else around me is just how often we fall into judging other people. You know, it was a guy called Stephen Covey who once said, we have this tendency where we'll judge ourselves by our intentions. You know, I meant well by this. I meant all good. But we'll judge other people by their actions. Now, I think he's mostly right. Certainly, I think we judge ourselves by our intentions, but we don't just judge others by their actions. We judge other people by our interpretation of their actions. And we'll do this. We'll, we'll place a judgment on their actions, on who they are as a person. We'll, in fact, judge the person behind the action. We will judge their intentions. And we do this all the time. I mean, have you ever heard yourself say, or have you ever heard someone else say, you are so insensitive, you're uncaring, you're not listening to me, you don't care about me, you're rejecting me. I mean, this kind of language, what are we doing here? We're placing a label, we're placing a judgment on another person's behavior and on the person behind the action. Now, my friends, when we do that, we overstep the boundary and we step into another person's zone. Because to be fair, we don't actually know what someone else's intentions really were. We can guess, we can have a hunch as to what it is, but we don't really know. And so when we step over, we are assuming what's going on inside their head. And often we are unfairly assuming, wrongfully assuming what's going on. And every time we do it, we're overstepping the boundary line and we're stepping into someone else's zone. See, let me just check, just by a show of hands, how many people here like to be misjudged? So no one. I mean, none of us do, do we? Also, let me check on it. How many people here feel uncomfortable or disturbed when someone judges or misjudges you? Okay, there's a few more hands. What about if we ramp it up? How many people actually feel quite distressed when you know someone is judging or misjudging you? Yeah, there's a few of us in that. And you see, my friends, if that's how we feel, when we're on the receiving end of someone else judging us or misjudging us, then guess how the other person feels when we judge them, when we label their behavior, when we label their intentions, they're feeling just as equally pained as we are. And what happens? We inflame the situation and we cause the other person to get defensive and pull away from us. So one of the key reasons why Jesus is teaching us don't judge is because we need to treat other people as we would actually want to be treated. We need to treat other people fairly in this. Now, there's a second reason why Jesus is telling us not to judge. And it's an actually, it's a, it's a much deeper reason. 
But, but to get this, to explain this, we've got to pause the passage and we've got to step over to another understanding just to clarify what's going on here. You see, in, in 1 Thessalonians, one of the things the Bible tells us is that we are made up as body, soul, and spirit. That, that's who we are. That's the core of who we are. That's the essence of, of how we're knitted together. That at the core of our being, we are spirit. That's the essence, the essential me of who I am. But I also have this soul where I think and where I feel. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word for soul is suke, which is where we get the term sukeology, which is psychology. I mean, what is psychology when it's at it the best? It's the study of the soul. Now, I might think certain things, I might feel certain things, but that's not the core of who I am. There is something deeper there. But I'm also wrapped in this body, this hardware system that I carry around. And when I act, when I behave, it comes from my body. So the way that I treat you, what I say to you, or what I fail to do and what I fail to say, comes from my body. And that will come from me, but it isn't the essence of me. The core of my being is my spirit. And this is the place that is the deep part of me that I refer to as the I am of who I am. And you see, my friends, what I've found, what I've discovered is that a person is only as healthy or unhealthy to the degree that they finish this I am of who they are in a constructive way in line with what God would say. Because, I mean, you think about it. If you had a person who deep down at the core of their being, they believed, I am worthy, I am significant, I am worthwhile. I am valuable, I am useful, I am forgiven. Now, if that, underneath all their layers, is what they carry, well, now, now they, they walk with confidence. Now they walk with certainty. But if a person deep down in the core of their being, you know, when you peel back all the layers, what's down in my I am? Well, I am insignificant. I am insufficient. I am inadequate, I am useless, I am unwanted, I am rejected. Well, you can see how the very core of their being starts to get crushed, that the image of God in their life starts to get crushed. Now, to be fair, what, what I usually find happens in a person's I am is, is that it's a conditional I am. So what goes on there is they will say, I am loved so long as everyone approves of me. I am worthy so long as I'm achieving what I need to achieve. I'm okay, so long as no one's criticizing or blaming me. It's a conditional kind of I am. But my friends, what I want you to get is that I am of who you are. There is only one who can finish your I am, and he's in love with you. There is only one who has the right to finish your I am. And you see, my friends, when we write something more, on our I am, then what God would say is there? Well, that's pride. But if we would write anything less than what God would say is there in my I am, that is also pride. Because you're saying you know better than God as to who you are. We do not have the right to finish our I am in any way except how He would write it. And you see, my friends, this is true humility. Humility is simply agreeing with God as to how He sees you. 
Anything more is pride, but anything less is pride. So in this, this place, this I am of who I am, this is a sacred place. This is God's place. This is God's zone. So you don't have the right to write anything more, but you don't have the right to write anything less. And so you don't have the right. Jesus doesn't give you permission to judge yourself, to dump on yourself, to beat up on yourself. If you do, you do it alone. He doesn't join in. And you see, my friends, if that is a sacred place and I don't have the right to finish anything of my I am except what he wants to write there, then who am I to place a label or judgment on you? Who am I to finish your I am? And my friends, this is where we start to judge other people and we overstep our zone, we overstep the boundary and we find ourselves in God's zone, which is not a place I really want to be. I want to stay back in my place and not step into his territory. Because at that point, we do it all the time. As you might hear someone say, you are selfish, lazy, inconsiderate. You are rejecting me. You are worthless. You know, when we do that, we place a judgment at the core of a person's being and we overstep the mark and we step into God's side. I mean, what's the opposite of this, of the judging of another person like this? It's honoring the person. It's honoring the image of God in another person. As we separate out who they are at the core of their being from the actions that they've done. So in this, I may honor you as a person made by God who carries his image. I can still be unhappy with your actions. So I honor the person and I describe the actions. So I might describe the actions and say, I've noticed that you've arrived late each day this week. I've noticed that you did nothing for our anniversary. (laughs) I've noticed that you've left your coffee cup just lying around and haven't put it in the dishwasher. I've noticed, honey, that at the party... Tonight, you spend a lot of time talking to that really good-looking young man, laughing at his jokes, touching his arm occasionally. So what we can do is we can describe the behavior, but we don't judge it, label it, interpret it. We honor the person and we describe the behavior. And when we do that, we own our zone. And that's the first part of what Jesus teaches us in this passage. Do not judge. The second part of what we see Jesus teach us in this passage is he says, do not try to take the speck out of someone else's eye before you first take the log out of your eye. Now, at the time of Jesus, this this would have been hilarious. I mean, this this would have had the, the followers, people wandering around with Jesus in absolute hysterics. I mean, when you think about the imagery that's used here, it's farcical, isn't it? Jesus paints a picture of someone chasing another person to try to find the speck in their eye and flick it out. All the while, there's this ruddy great log in their eye, this plank in their eye. I mean, when you see the imagery here, it's absolutely farcical. But Jesus does it for a very specific purpose. 
You see, as I, I counsel people, as I work with people in conflict situations, do you know one thing that I have found that every person in conflict has in common with someone else in conflict? is they are each very aware of what the other person is doing wrong. And when we get caught in that, we stall the relationship. But what we see Jesus doing here is he places the emphasis on you. Now we know that Jesus got this wrong, don't we? Because if anyone's ever been in conflict, you know that if anybody has got a log in their eye, it ain't me, it's them. I mean, sure, sure, I'm not being perfect here, but I mean, my side, my role in this is minuscule, it's minor. It's just merely a speck. But what they're doing is horrendous. That tends to be the way that we play this, isn't it? And the technique that's used here is called maximizing and minimizing. We maximize the other person's contribution and how bad they are being, and we minimize our contribution because it's really not all that important. But you see, what I find interesting is without knowing your context, your situation, where does Jesus place the emphasis? Where does he place the responsibility? It's with you. I mean, what he's saying here is you need to clean up your side of the street before you seek the other person to clean up their side. You know, I remember when my wife and I were living in Melbourne. We were there for a couple of years before we had any kids. And we lived in an area called Coburg. Now, Coburg was the Turkish community. So our neighbors were a wonderful Turkish family with three generations. You had grandma and granddad, you had mum and dad, you had the little kids as well. And I used to have some really interesting conversations with the granddad, who was sort of like the patriarch of the household. Now, he had English as a second language, and it, it wasn't all that flash. And I had absolutely no Turkish. So in this, we had some very interesting conversations. And I remember one time, uh, what was going on was on their side of the fence, they had a compost bin, which is fine. They're doing some composting, except that it was overflowing. So there were apple peels and apple uh, and orange peels and, and banana skins and, and all the sort of food stuff falling over onto the ground. And I remember looking out our window and watching mice run across our backyard and go over into their yard munch on all the food, and then disappear back again somewhere off into the distance. And he comes to me one time and he says, Richard, we have a problem. I was going, yeah, I, I know what you mean. He says, there are mites coming from your side onto my side. I'm thinking, yeah, that's because you're offering them a mice buffet. He says, this isn't good. He says, you need to clean up your backside. Which took me a minute. I went, oh, I need to clean up my backyard. I went, yeah, sure, that's fine. I'll mow the lawns. I'll, I'll, I'll rake the leaves. I'll take care of my side. But if you could dial down the food content, if we don't stop feeding them, that might also help. But I love this phrase of what he said to me. You need to clean up your backside. And that's what Jesus is teaching us at this point. You need to clean up your backside before you clean up someone else's backside. Now that's put a certain image in your head, hasn't it? And you see, 
Jesus places the responsibility for us to own our zone before we ask other people to change. And yet so often we don't do this. And what we end up falling into is a very normal, natural, human, dysfunctional state of being that is called a victim mindset. So that when we're in a relationship with someone else, what we'll find that happens when things go wrong, when things aren't good, we'll fall into a victim mindset where we stop owning our zone and we become very clear about what the other person's doing wrong and we do three key things. And as I sort of outline these three key things, I just want you to think about your own relationships. I want you to think about some difficulties, some conflict perhaps that you've been in recently and just see if any of this matches up with your experience. Sound okay? So let's have a look. The first thing that you'll do in a victim mindset is you will blame the other person for how you feel. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Because you were feeling fine until they behaved the way they did or until they didn't behave in the way you wanted. They didn't respond to your text. They didn't like your post. There was something that they haven't done. And now, now you don't feel good. And why don't I feel good? It's because of what they have done. And now because you've blamed the other person, the second thing follows. Because they are causing me to feel this way. Well, now, now I'm justified in reacting and behaving in whatever way I want. So, of course, I'm going to yell at you. Of course, I'm going to speak back to you in a horrible way. All I'm doing is defending my position. All I'm doing is making my point. All I'm doing is pushing back on you. And so, as a result, I should get no consequences to this at all. I'm just evening the score here. And the third thing that we will do in our victim mindset is we'll wait. We'll wait for the other person to come and apologize to us. Anytime you want to come and give me your apology, I will receive it. I am that magnanimous. (laughs) And the other thing I'll wait, the person will wait for, is they'll wait for you to change. Why? Because ultimately, you are the problem here. Now, my friends, when you've got a person operating in this victim mindset, when they're leaning on their rights as a victim, and they're blaming someone for how they feel, they're justifying any course of action, and they are waiting for the other person to change. As soon as you behave in any way that's unhelpful, hurtful, harmful, guess how the other person now feels? Well, they now feel like they are your victim, and they know they can blame you for how they're feeling because they were feeling fine until you behaved the way you did. They will justify their actions because really they're just evening the score. They're just making their point. And they will wait for you to come and apologize to them. They'll wait for you to change because really you're the problem. Now, my friends, when you've got two people operating in a victim mindset, in this reactive mindset, guess what happens to the relationship? I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? It breaks apart really quickly. But the Bible teaches us a different way. In Romans 12, it teaches us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there's another mindset here. There's an overcomer's mindset here. And what does that look like? It looks like the complete opposite of the victim mindset. You see, in the overcomer's mindset, the first thing that an overcomer knows 
is that I need to take responsibility for how I feel. One of the things that I recognize in my overcomer's mindset is this one key truth. No one can make me feel a certain way. I'm feeling this way all by myself. Why is that? Because no one can put an emotion in me. It comes from within me. It doesn't mean my feelings are wrong. It doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to feel this way. It just means my feelings under my jurisdiction, that I have to own this. And also, please don't mishear me. It's not saying that you just have to tolerate their bad behavior. It's not saying suck it up, buttercup, and just put up with it. It's saying that in this, my feelings come under my responsibility. The second thing, because of that, if I can't blame you for how I'm feeling, well, I cannot justify any behavior that's not helpful. So I'll say to people, when you look at your behavior, what comes from you in the cold light of day, if it's not constructive to the relationship, it's never justified. So we've actually got to put that out of bounds. And we've got to find a different way of being. And I'll say to people, if you were in your most mature adult mindset, how would you have behaved differently? And most people know, and it's light years away from the victim mindset. And the third thing we know in our overcomer's mindset is rather than waiting, I will initiate. I will initiate to apologize to you anywhere there is any kernel of truth that any of my behavior was not constructive. I will clean up my side before I expect you to clean up your side. And I will initiate to address the issue. You see, my friends, in this, when we start to own our zone, when we, when we pull back from judging, when we, in fact, honor the other person and describe the behavior, when I own my zone and I get out of my victim mindset and I get into my overcomer's mindset, well, now, now I start to change all of the relationships around me. Now I start to build relationships of quality. Now I start to heal ones that have broken and strengthen ones that are already good. Are you with me? My friends, can we just stand together, please? And can I get the band back up here as well? Look, just where you are right now, I just want you to bow your head and I want you to center on the Lord. I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit. What is he putting a finger on in your life? What relationships is he highlighting that needs to be worked on? What tendency do you notice that you fall into that he wants you to change? So where do you need to grow emotionally? Where do you need to develop better relational skills?